You can't let that happen to me. Guess what, Mr. President? They let that happen to you. And much worse. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN. In Palinville, New York, on WLPP. In Grand Rapids, on WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, where we blanket planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com thanking you for joining us along with thanking all of our fine affiliates even the ones I didn't get to list there at the top of the show coming up is the Republican governor of Kentucky actually really truly considering stealing the election that was held last Tuesday from its apparent winner Democrat Andy Bashir, who is reported to have won the race on Tuesday by just over 5,000 votes out of 1.4 million of them cast. Well, that idea uh, seems absurd, unthinkable to even consider at this point. Nonetheless, some very serious people, uh, well-respected law professors and election experts seem quite concerned today about exactly that, particularly as the uh, very Trumpy and unpopular Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin may, they fear, be sketching out a playbook for his friend Donald Trump to follow after next year's 2020 presidential election. Desi, you're looking at me uh, curiously. I am not at all surprised to find a Trumpy Republican governor stepping forward to make claims that he's been making and then do whatever he can. I wouldn't be surprised if he does whatever he can well, to try to hold on to power. We will see. The, the, we'll talk about it in, in a moment here. But the last time a Kentucky gubernatorial election was contested was back in 1899. And one of the candidates ended up, wait for it, murdered. <laughs> While it has not yet come to that, uh, we, will, um, we will see what the University of Kentucky College of Law professor Josh Douglas has to say about this entire fine mess down in Kentucky shortly. Also, 
That voice you heard, of course, was Desi Doyen, and she will be here to bring the, let's see, our 999th Green News Report today, if my math is correct. I hope your math is correct. That's a lot. Uh, it is. It feels like it. Uh, yes, as it does. That as 11,000 scientists, by the way, are now screaming at the top of their lungs about climate change as the planet has just experienced its hottest ever October. Uh, but first, with a lot of breaking news, as usual today and every day these days, let me jump on this one, which broke within the past hour, underscoring once again the virtually indescribable, uh, never-ending criminality of this president, the president of the United States. A judge on Thursday ordered President Donald Trump to pay $2 million to an array of charities as a fine for misusing his own supposedly charitable foundation to further his own political and business interests. The order appears to bring to an end the New York Attorney General's lawsuit against the president and three of his oldest children over the now shuttered foundation, which the attorney general said had engaged in repeated wrongdoing. Then Attorney General Barbara Underwood alleged in a statement last year when the case was filed, quote, our petition detailed a shocking pattern of illegality involving the Trump Foundation, including unlawful coordination with the Trump presidential campaign, repeated and willful self-dealing and much more. Well, New York State Judge Sallyann Scarpula imposed the penalty, uh, agreeing, it seems, with much of the attorney general's case. After the president admitted to a series of abuses that were outlined in a lawsuit brought against him last year by the New York attorney general. Among other things, Trump acknowledged that, yes, he improperly allowed his presidential campaign staff to coordinate with the Trump Foundation in holding a fundraiser for veterans during the run up to the 2016 Iowa caucuses. The event was designed, quote, to further Mr. Trump's political campaign, according to the judge. The attorney general, Letitia James, said the evidence of banned coordination between campaign officials and the foundation included emails exchanged with then-Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, which made it all clear, yes, his emails Trump also admitted in the agreements, he admitted all this, to directing that $100,000 in foundation money be used to settle his own legal claims over an 80-foot flagpole that he had built at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach, Florida, unlawfully, uh, instead of paying the expense out of his own pocket in that settlement after he was sued by Palm Beach, Florida. He admitted, among other things, to improperly arranging for the charity to pay $10,000 for a six-foot portrait of himself. Remember that? Oh, yes. He also agreed to pay back $11,500 in foundation funds that he spent on sports memorabilia and champagne at a charity gala. As part of the settlement, Donald Trump Jr., a board member of the fraudulent so-called Charitable Foundation, reimbursed the Trump Foundation for the cost of the portrait. So Donald Trump had to pay for that. Donald Trump Jr. had to pay for that. I hope he has to keep it in his bedroom uh, as a haunting reminder of what his life has become for the rest of his days as part of this settlement. Maybe he likes it. 
in, in his addition, bedroom staring yeah, at him. Yeah, no comment. In addition, the foundation paid $158,000 to resolve a lawsuit over a prize for a hole-in-one contest at a Trump-owned golf course. That was the case where a guy actually got a hole-in-one in this contest, and uh, the Trump Foundation refused to pay up. $5,000 for ads promoting Trump's hotels in programs for charitable events. Trump admitted that all of those transactions were also improper. The foundation will be dissolved and its $1.7 million in remaining funds will be given to other nonprofits, hopefully real ones, under agreements reached by Trump's lawyers and the AG's office. As part of those agreements that were made public today, the two sides left it up to the judge to decide what penalty Trump should pay. And she came up with that $2 million penalty. The settlement, of course, was an about face for Trump because he and his lawyers have blasted the lawsuit as politically motivated. And back in June of 2018, just at just last year, he tweeted, quote, I won't settle this case, exclamation point. Well, he settled the case because, you know what, that's what he always says about every case and when he's pressed, well, he's a paper tiger. And because he's a liar and a con man who ultimately buckles when he actually gets caught. Trump's fine and the uh, charity's funds will be evenly split among eight organizations, including City Meals on Wheels, the United Negro College Fund. Oh, I bet that drives him crazy. And the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which probably drives many of his supporters crazy. Attorney General James welcomed the resolution of the case as a, quote, major victory in our efforts to protect charitable assets and hold accountable those who would abuse charities for personal gain. No one is above the law, she said, not a businessman, not a candidate for office, and not even the president of the United States. Well, that part remains to be seen. Trump also uh, accepted restrictions on his involvement in other charitable organizations, and his three eldest children, who were members of the board, uh, must now undergo mandatory training on the duties of those who run charities. So I guess they will be allowed to be on the board of other charities, but they'll have to have mandatory training. But why not the president? Why doesn't he have to have that training? Well, uh, because maybe the president is above the law. And he's not even being impeached for any of this, at least as far as we know, which, uh, given that he used his charity to help him get elected while illegally coordinating his campaign with the charitable foundation pretending to help veterans, that would almost certainly be impeachable on its own for any other president, at least any other Democratic one. Uh, and I know that's becoming a tired old parlor game to imagine, oh, what if Obama did it? But it needs to be said because we need to take an occasional step back here to appreciate how bat crap insane that all of this is right now. That the president of the United States just had to cough up three point seven million dollars because of a list of wrongdoing as long as my arm with his so-called charitable foundation. That would result in any other president justifiably being run out of office all by itself. 
He's also not being impeached, at least as far as we know, for paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in hush money payments to porn stars with whom he had affairs to keep them quiet just before the 2016 elections in hope uh, in hopes of winning it. That's a violation of campaign finance laws, which his own attorney is now in federal prison for having participated in a felony conspiracy that he and prosecutors both admit, both say was, quote, directed by Donald Trump, who, by the way, then paid hush money to that attorney, Michael Cohen, while he was in office as president. And as far as we know, he's not being impeached for that. I could go on and on with a list of things that he is not being impeached for, that he should be impeached for, that any other president would be impeached for. But he is, at least, finally being impeached for abuse of presidential powers in attempting to extort Ukraine by withholding military assistance and a White House visit with the president in exchange for a commitment from Ukraine's president to announce a phony investigation into Trump's political rivals and a conspiracy theory regarding alleged Ukrainian, not Russian, interference in the 2016 election. That impeachment inquiry continues to move to move forward apace today with the uh, first public impeachment hearings now scheduled on the matter uh, next Wednesday, beginning with public testimony by Bill Taylor, Trump's own top ambassador in Ukraine, who has testified that Trump was attempting a quid pro quo to strong arm the Ukrainian president to accede to his partisan political demands that he help him in the 2020 election and using uh, not a few hundred thousand dollars of charitable foundation money to do it, but using three hundred and ninety one million dollars in taxpayer money to do it. Money that was allocated by Congress for military aid to the country. Uh, Also uh, next week, George Kent, uh, Trump's deputy assistant secretary of state, he will testify on Wednesday as another key witness in this matter on the first day of public hearings. According to transcripts released on Thursday of Kent's closed door congressional deposition last month, he told House investigators that he created contemporaneous memos. Uh oh. Of specific conversations that he had witnessed related to the White House's attempted quid pro quo, uh, which he characterized as, quote, injurious to the rule of law, both in Ukraine and the U.S. That, according to the transcript of his testimony made public today, as I suspect we'll have much more on the impeachment matter in the coming days for some reason. Uh, I still want to hit, while we can, uh, a few more points from Tuesday's off-year elections. Uh, where there were, as we've been discussing over the past couple of days, just disasters when it comes to voting systems in a number of key states, states that will be key in 2020, including Georgia, including Pennsylvania, where the brand new touchscreen computer ballot marking devices failed and failed bigly in some cases, to not even uh, report results at the end of the election night, reporting that there were, you know, zero votes for some candidates. 
We'll have much more about that in the days ahead as these machines are being used all over the place in 2020, not just Georgia and Pennsylvania, which are key battleground states, but also Iowa and Texas and New Jersey and Delaware and about a dozen other states, Ohio, and yes, right here in my great county of Los Angeles. So yeah, I will have more to say about that in the coming days. But in the meantime, in those off-year elections, from the results that we do have, Democrats uh, did stuff like take over both houses of the Virginia legislature for the first time in decades. For what one of the re-elected Democratic House of Delegates representatives, uh, Mark Levine, told us on yesterday's broadcast was due almost entirely to Donald Trump, who, he told me, fed their fire because, as he said, uh, the only good thing Donald Trump has ever done in his life is help us win legislative seats before he went on to describe Trump as the gift that keeps on giving and adding that he felt the ongoing impeachment proceedings actually helped rather than hurt Democrats to win their trifecta control of the state Senate, the House of Delegates and the governor's mansion in Virginia. That, in contrast to Nancy Pelosi's many months of bizarre hand-wringing that somehow impeachment would help the president. You know what helps this president? Fear of this president. Let's not be afraid of him. He's a paper tiger. Philip Gurevich of New Yorker uh, on election night on Tuesday tweeted that when Trump took office, 34 governors were Republicans, 16 were Democrats, one was independent. Dems have since then flipped Illinois, Kansas, Maine, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, Wisconsin, and now Kentucky. Come January, there will be 26 GOP governors and 24 Democrats, he notes. Well, that is, of course, if voters did indeed flip the Republican governorship from red to blue in Kentucky, as the, official, as the unofficial results would seem to suggest. But in what could be a playbook built for Donald Trump in 2020, Republicans apparently rejected Kentucky governor is not at least so far, giving up without a fight. And he may have a lot of firepower in that fight in the state legislature. That story is next on the broadcast. You won't want to miss it. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It was certainly shining over Kentucky this weekend, that blue moon. At least it seems that it was. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There was a whole lot of good news for Democrats during the 2019 off-year elections on Tuesday around the country. But among the most noteworthy was the race for governor in the otherwise deep red state of Kentucky where their very unpopular Republican governor, Matt Bevin, had to seek the help of Donald Trump, of all people, 
to help drag him over the finish line or at least try in a contest that pre-election polls suggested uh, would likely be a dead heat against his Democratic challenger, Kentucky State Attorney General Andy Bashir. Speaking at a rally in Kentucky on Monday night, election eve with Governor Bevin, Trump damn near begged his supporters to save him. I mean, save Bevin. If you lose, it sends a really bad message. It just sends a bad, and they will build it up. Here's the story. If you win, they're going to make it like ho-hum. And if you lose, they're going to say, Trump suffered the greatest defeat in the history of the world. This was the greatest. You can't let that happen to me. Because, of course, it is always about him. But the voters did let it happen to him, at least according to the reported unofficial results, which show that the Democrat Bashir defeated first-time Governor Bevin by a little bit over 5,000 votes out of some 1.4 million cast. That is just less than one-half of a percentage point in the high turnout election in the bluegrass state on Tuesday. That, by the way, in a state that Donald Trump won by some 30 points just three years ago in 2016. On Tuesday night, Andy Bashir declared victory, but Governor Bevin refused to. He refused to concede, citing, quote, well-corroborated irregularities at what, at what was to have been his victory party. We are not conceding this race by any stretch. We want the process to be followed, and there is a process. We know for a fact that there have been more than a few irregularities. They are very well corroborated, and that's all right. What they are exactly, how many, which ones, and what effect, if any, they have will be determined according to law. And in the end, we will have the governor that was chosen by the people of Kentucky. And that's the way the process should work. As I noted on yesterday's broadcast, I don't have any real problems with that, with Governor Bevin there. It sounds reasonable, even if Bevin did not offer any specifics on those, quote, well-corroborated irregularities, which you'd think he might have had they been so well-corroborated. But as I also noted yesterday, it seems odd that there were so many irregularities in the election, according to Bevin, that didn't apparently prevent every other Republican on the same ballot running in statewide races on Tuesday from winning, which they did up and down the ticket from secretary of state to ag commissioner. All the Republicans won, except for the very unpopular Bevin, who, with a 32 percent approval rating in the state, is among the most unpopular governors in the nation. Still, he has every right to challenge the unverified results of his election, as far as I'm concerned. On Wednesday night, according to The New York Times, Bevin told reporters in the entryway to the governor's mansion that he is fighting to hang on to, quote, we want the people of Kentucky to have absolute confidence that their votes were counted as they should have been counted. Again, sounds quite reasonable. He added, there's more than a little bit of history of voter fraud in our state. And on that... He is absolutely correct, including not very long ago at all, as we reported in great detail 
at bradblog.com back in 2010 and 2011 when federal officials had to come in and break up a huge vote buying and selling ring in Clay County, Kentucky that had been going on for years and whose conspirators ended up including the Clay County clerk, a state circuit court judge, the local school superintendent, a former magistrate and several polling place officials, which won them in addition to a bunch of stolen elections a combined 156 years of federal prison time for election rigging, which included, by the way, flipping votes on ES&S touchscreen voting machines after voters had voted on them. But I digress. As Politico reported on Wednesday, after Bevan, earlier in the day, officially filed a request for a re-canvas of all county election results... The governor got only slightly more specific about those well-corroborated irregularities that he had cited on election night. Without providing details, Politico reports Bevin cited, quote, thousands of absentee ballots that were illegally counted, reports of voters being, quote, incorrectly turned away from polling places, and, quote, a number of machines that did not work properly. Well, that part is easy to believe anyway. He said his campaign would provide more information as it is gathered, but he did not take any questions from the reporters. The Secretary of State in Kentucky has now scheduled the so-called recanvas for next Thursday, November 14. Describing past recanvas efforts in the state, our old friend Joshua A. Douglas, professor of law at the University of Kentucky, is quoted in The New York Times as saying, quote, in every instance, the vote totals change by a very small amount, adding that the recanvas would likely come nowhere near the 5000 votes Mr. Bevan needs to close the gap with with Bashir. After that recanvas happens next week, well, Things get a bit murkier as far as the process goes and as far as whether or not he can actually request a recount. As UC Irvine election law professor Rick Hassan notes in Slate today, Kentucky has a set of rules to resolve contested elections, but those rules do not apply to a governor's race. Instead, the state constitution provides that, quote, Contested elections for governor and lieutenant governor shall be determined by both houses of the General Assembly, according to such regulations as may be established by law. Both houses of the General Assembly in Kentucky are controlled right now by Republicans. The normally very staid, legally conservative Hassan goes on to say in his Slate article headlined, Could Matt Bevin Steal the Kentucky Governor's Election?, that he, quote, ordinarily would would consider the possibility of the Kentucky legislature overriding the will of the voters to be preposterous. But Hassan then adds chillingly, we do not live in ordinary times. And on Wednesday, Kentucky Senate President Robert Stivers raised the prospect that his institution, not the voters, could determine the outcome of the race. Really? Yeah, really. Election contests in the governor's race are extremely rare in Kentucky, the Lexington Herald leader noted yesterday, and perhaps for good reason. The last contest, they explain, was in 1899 when Democrat William Goebel won the election over Republican William S. Taylor because the General Assembly invalidated enough Republican votes to give Goebel the office. Days later, they note... 
Goebel was assassinated. Well, that's a chilling end to that introduction, isn't it? Joining us now for much on uh, much more on all of this, what the state's strange procedures are for handling contested gubernatorial elections, how we got to this point in the first place, and what we might expect moving forward in both the challenge to the results and a Bashir governorship in Kentucky, which still seems more likely than not, as the Democrat is largely ignoring Bevin's challenge and moving forward with his transition. Yes, it's our old friend, Josh Douglas, who teaches election law, voting rights, and constitutional law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. Professor Douglas has written for many of the top legal journals in the nation and a whole bunch of media outlets. His latest book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, details how citizens around the country are helping to expand the franchise and how you, yes, you, can help do the same in your own hometown. Oh, Professor, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks, Brad. Great to be back. So a fascinating and bizarre story that, frankly, might be more ignorable at any other time in our nation's history. But as uh, as, as closely as uh, Bevin has allied himself with Donald Trump, Rick Hassan notes at Slate, quote, the fact that we're even discussing this potentiality of a, of a state legislature throwing an election to their partisan friend one year before Donald Trump, who has repeatedly challenged vote totals in his 2016 election victory, is before he is set to face re-election, is a wrenching sign for our already damaged democracy. Josh, is there actual danger lurking here? Are there so-called irregularities of note that could flip the election results, or is Governor Bevin just having trouble accepting the verdict of the voters on Tuesday night? Well, I think there is danger, but it's not about irregularities. It's about the governor's rhetoric uh, and his allegations of voter fraud and problems without any evidence whatsoever. And I think that's really dangerous for our democracy, because it really undermines or can undermine the public's confidence in our electoral system. And so I have not seen any evidence whatsoever that there's been any problems in the way that Tuesday's election was run. In fact, it was a fairly quiet election day mm -hmm. for me in Kentucky, and I usually hear different, uh, and I hear about things that might be concerning. Mm -hmm. The danger here is really Governor Bevin's uh, allegations without any evidence and uh, Republican leaders' failure to call him out on that point. But is it dangerous? I mean, so far, it seems to me, and you may have heard something, you know, stuff that I haven't heard. I've been trying to keep up with a lot of stuff here. But it, basically, he's saying, uh, hey, I would like a re-canvas. I want to make sure that the computers that reported the numbers reported them correctly and accurately so that the public can have confidence in those results. Uh, why yeah, is that dangerous? That and there's, he said that, and there's no problem with that, it's very, it's within his right to ask for the re-canvas, mm -hmm. uh, to say, I want an accurate vote total and, and an accurate check. I've got no problem with any of that, especially in an election decided by 5,000 votes at a 1.4 million cast. Mm -hmm. uh, my problem is these claims that he said there are thousands of absentee ballots that were fraudulently cast. Right. Uh, he said there, there's allegations of uh, voting machines not working or people being turned away from the polls. None of this has any evidentiary support. So we have to be very careful in thinking about what the governor is actually saying. Mm -hmm. Yes, ask for the recount. Perfectly fine. No problem. No, you can't peddle these claims of election irregularities without any evidence because that's the thing that undermines people's confidence 
in our elections. And as you note, it's very concerning for what could happen in 2020 if Trump does not win re-election, and he also refuses to concede defeat by peddling theories of voter fraud without any evidence. So before we get to the actual legal process that awaits here, if uh, Bevin does continue down this path, uh, when he first ran in 2015, pre-election polls showed him uh, to be anywhere from three to uh, five points behind his Democratic challenger that year, uh, Jack Conway, uh, also the attorney general, as I recall. But Bevin ended up winning with what I saw as a, a kind of questionable nearly nine point victory somehow that year. This time, the polls pretty much predicted it would be a dead heat. And that's pretty much what we got. What happened here that is so different from 2015, as you see it, Josh? Well, the first thing I'd say is that uh, the polling in Kentucky has not been particularly sophisticated in many of these elections. You mm-hmm. can look at the 2014 race between Allison Grimes and Mitch McConnell for Senate, mm-hmm. uh, which also did not have particularly accurate polling. Uh, so, you know, I think we need to take the polling with a grain of salt to begin with. But what happened here is that we had a lot higher turnout, especially in some of the ur- more urban areas and in northern Kentucky. In 2015, turnout was 31% across the state, uh, and this year it was around 42%. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually both Democratic and Republican candidates for governor received higher raw vote totals than their counterparts in 2015. Uh, and then if you look at places like Lexington, uh, Fayette County, where I'm located, uh, turnout was even higher than the statewide. I think turnout in Fayette was somewhere around 44 or 45%, and that's a fairly uh, reliably blue area, although in 2015, uh, Jack Conway, the Democratic nominee, got about 55% of the Fayette County vote, and um, Andy Bashir this year got about 66%. So we had both higher turnout in certain areas and also higher vote totals in some of those more blue areas. Uh, you know, by the way, I don't think 42% turnout is, is good. Uh, you know, when 58% of the electorate doesn't show up, we have a problem. But it's at least better than the 31 we had four years ago. Yeah, it was uh, in, in 2015. There was uh, less than a million voters. Now you had another half million who turned out on Tuesday. So that's at least somewhat good news. All right. So Bevan is uh, suggesting he may contest the results uh, or he's threatening to, I guess. He's asked for this re-canvas. That will happen next week when, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, basically they just sort of uh, rerun the numbers that they have already uh, run, that they have uh, the ballots that have already been scanned, that the uh, touchscreen computers that have already turned out their numbers, they just reach check those numbers. Is that essentially what that means in that part of the process? Exactly. It's not a recheck of the ballots necessarily or a recount of the ballots. It's it's a recheck of the And then after that is when it seems like it begins to get a bit murky. So what is the uh, contest and or recount procedure that would follow this re-canvas if uh, Bevan is still not happy with those numbers uh, as they're reported in that re-canvas? So Kentucky law does provide for recounts, um, but the statute involving this process explicitly excludes gubernatorial elections. So it appears that there's no possibility for an actual recount of ballots in a statewide gubernatorial election. So then the only recourse left is for him to file an election contest in the state legislature itself. He would have to provide a formal written notice of the contest and the grounds for it, 
and then the legislature would begin its process under the law to review the allegations and determine the contest. So immediately after the canvas, the re-canvas, if he doesn't like the numbers, he then essentially goes straight to his own Republican-controlled House and Senate in Kentucky and says, I I challenge this, I'm contesting this, here's why, and uh, you guys now decide? Well, sort of. So the first thing that happens is the certification of the results Mm -hmm. by the State Board of Elections. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have until November 25th to certify the results. Um, they, they can meet earlier, and they, they may be scheduling earlier, but the November 25th is the, is, the, is the deadline. And then after the certification of the results, the governor would have 30 days to file his formal contest in the legislature. Uh, so if the State Board of Elections waited its full time to certify to November 25th, he would actually have until December 25th uh-huh. to contest the election. Uh-huh. Yes, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Kentucky. yeah. <laughs> um, but also, in the meantime the new governor becomes inaugurated on December 10th. And so you could have a Governor Bashir starting on December 10th, mm-hmm. and theoretically, uh, Bevin challenging the results of this election through a contest in the legislature after that time period. Wow. Uh, so if, if, this, if his claims of uh, so-called voter fraud that he says are well corroborated, and we'll see what those are if, in fact, he actually turns up any information, how can that be squared, Josh? Uh, you know Kentucky elections as well as anyone. How can that be squared with the fact that every other GOP statewide nominee actually won on Tuesday night? It was only Governor uh, Bevin who uh, came up short uh, to the Democrat. I- I think it shows how unpopular he uh, is and has been among moderate and Republican voters as well as Democrats. Um, you know, you had a lot of people he alienated. Teachers in particular were really motivated to get out and vote against him. And they may have voted uh, for Bashir at the top of the ticket, but then gone back to their Republican roots for the rest of the candidates. Um, you know, it is widely known how unpopular he has been mm-hmm. over the past several years as governor with rhetoric it sounds very trumpian in nature and in the way in which he speaks about uh, individuals about teachers about the media um in fact he even had refused to disclose his tax returns before he was elected in 2015 <laughs> similar to trump yeah uh, so he's been very trumpian in, in lots of respects and that's again why this is uh, allegations of election irregularities without any evidence is so concerning because what precedent does it set for 2020? So I think these results, you know, are not all that surprising that the Republicans did very well. Kentucky is a very Republican state, mm-hmm. and yet the top of the ticket, Bevin, is not liked even among many people in his own party here. Uh, well, uh, speaking of which, it would be his own party in the legislature who ends up uh, deciding this. Uh, Rick Hassan writes, uh, suppose, as seems most likely, that Bevin cannot come up with evidence of voter fraud or other problems that could plausibly swing a 5,000 vote margin. Would the Republican dominated legislature still attempt to hand the governorship back to Bevin? If it did hand Bevin the victory, even without evidence of fraud or major error, could federal courts then refuse to review? view the decision 
as uh, because it was an action by a state legislature in accordance with the state constitution. In other words, even a federal challenge at that point would not change uh, what happens in the state, in a state where the president of the Senate had said, yes, we're going to be likely deciding this. Is all of this really a possibility, Josh? I mean, it's a theoretical possibility. Uh, Whether it's a likelihood is another question. I've been happy to see a couple of Republican legislators uh, speak out today saying that uh, they would not welcome this kind of a a challenge or a contest and that he shouldn't be looking at the legislature to overturn the will of the people. So there's been a slow trickle of some Republican legislators who have spoken out against this. In my view, they haven't spoken out enough, particularly about these allegations of voter fraud without any evidence, but at least we're starting to see some cracks there, and I think that's a good sign, but it it certainly needs to get louder and larger and have more and more people on a bipartisan basis call out this type of activity uh, for basically uh, apparently being a sore loser, again, unless he actually has real evidence of any problem. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm sort of leaning on uh, on Rick Hassan here is because he is usually quite conservative. He does not talk about, you know, stolen elections and so forth. And he says that he would normally entertain something so seemingly absurd, but he does note that, quote, there's some question about whether normal rules apply anymore. He says we have already seen Republican state legislatures in places like Wisconsin and North Carolina go so far as to strip powers from incoming Democratic governors. We've reached the point where it is conceivable that the Kentucky legislature could go even further and make the election loser the winner. I, I know you know uh, Rick Hassan as well. He is not prone to, uh, you know, ridiculous pronouncements. He sounds sort of, I don't know if you saw the Slate article, he sounds sort of concerned by this, uh, Josh. Yeah, I mean, I think he's right to be concerned, and I'll actually have uh, an op-ed that makes a slightly different point going up uh, some point uh, in the next day or so mm-hmm. uh, that is similar and makes it uh, the same point. My concern is is more about the precedent this sets and how we handle this dispute uh, for when it comes for 2020, as I mentioned. And so um, I think it is concerning because of the anti-democratic norms that seem to be being pushed here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think it's dangerous for anyone of either party. So, you know, I don't love how Stacey Abrams, for example, has refused, refused to declare uh, her loss in the Georgia election uh, illegitimate, and she actually had some evidence of voter suppression. A lot of evidence, you know, I prefer, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, but I think it's, I think what she should say is, you know, I lost under the rules as as provided. Uh, the rules themselves are unfair, and so we should work to change those rules. I think that's perfectly fine, but when we start talking about stolen elections or illegitimacy, I think we get to a point where uh, if we don't call it out, you have an incumbent like or like Donald Trump uh, doing it as well. And so I think we need to have a, on a bipartisan basis, call out anyone who has lost an election under the rules as provided for that election, uh, claiming that it's stolen or illegitimate is, is really dangerous uh, for the very functioning of our democracy, which is why I've been so strong um, throughout the past couple of days. Uh, you know, I, I posted on Twitter mm-hmm. that in no uncertain terms and in the strongest language I could think of that Bevin needed to be What I wrote is he needs to put up or shut up uh, about these claims of uh, irregularities or voter fraud. Uh, And I think that applies to a Democrat or a Republican. And that's what's really concerning uh, to me, in addition to the things that 
Rick had suggested in his late piece. Very quickly, uh, we've just got another minute or two here, uh, Josh Douglas, um, since you mentioned 2020. So uh, what does this mean then, uh, presuming Bashir, the Democrat, remains the winner here? Uh, what does this mean for the other very unpopular statewide Republican politician from Kentucky? That would be Mitch McConnell. He'll be on the ballot in 2020. Could he also uh, r- really be threatened in the bluegrass uh, state next year? Well, I'm of two minds of this. You know, on the one hand, I'm not sure that this election is a real indicator of uh, Kentucky voters' views. Again, you know, all the other Republican candidates won handily, and in 2020, Donald Trump will be on the ballot. Mm -hmm. He's very popular in the state. And so on, on the one hand, you know, I'm not sure we can read too much into it. On the other hand, if new Governor Bashir follows through on his promise to reenfranchise thousands of Kentuckians who are permanently disenfranchised because of a felony conviction, and those people start to turn out to vote, you know, we don't know how they would break, but this does, you know, potentially add thousands of new voters into mm-hmm. the state, and, you know, we don't know what the political ramifications of that would be. So I think you could see a very different looking electorate uh, in 2020, depending on how quickly Bashir works. Um, and also, as you know, McConnell is very unpopular in the state as well, but, you know, he's not an unpopular in the same way. Bevin really alienated teachers in particular. There were uh, massive strikes, and schools were closed, uh, and McConnell hasn't taken those kinds of similar actions. He doesn't use the same kind of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think I'm not sure that the Bevin loss means that McConnell will lose, but again, we could also have a very different looking electorate if Bashir really does reenfranchise lots of people. Yeah, we're talking about some 300,000 persons with uh, felony convictions in Kentucky who uh, cannot uh, now vote. These are, you know, essentially former felons, but they are kept from voting for life in Kentucky. Is this something that uh, a, a Governor Bashir, presuming he remains the winner, that he'll be able to do by executive action is uh, simply reenfranchise all of those folks at once? Yeah, well, it's not clear to me under the law whether he could uh, issue one executive order reenfranchising all of them in one fell swoop or if it have to be essentially individual orders for each person. But he would be able to make meaningful progress on this issue. And uh, last question here, uh, what does the election of Bashir, other than that, what does it mean in general for Kentucky because the legislature is still controlled by Republicans know, so it's going to be very difficult for uh, Bashir to do anything other than things he can do by executive action, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it'll be really interesting to see to what extent he tries to work with the legislature, where the fault lines are. Um, you know, uh, we have you know, it is a little bit of a divided government, although the legislature has a lot of control. Um, and so I think it remains to be seen how effective he can be in actually passing various laws. But of course, with the governorship comes the ability to appoint executive agency officials mm. and have a, a large effect on the state's policies through executive action. And so I do think uh, that there could be a lot of changes with, with respect to education policy, with respect to pension issues uh, that are really harming the state, perhaps with respect to the opioid crisis. Uh, so there are a lot of still things that he can get done, even with a legislature of the other party. Josh, uh, Joshua A. Douglas, we didn't even have time here to uh, quibble about our disagreement over uh, ranked choice voting and instant runoff voting that was approved in New York City on Tuesday, uh, which uh, a lot of folks are citing as a big victory. Uh, folks who 
like that idea better than I do. I know you are one of them who likes it. And I would point folks to your book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. For, for uh, more information on that, we'll have to bicker about that another day. Josh, uh, you can find Joshua at joshuaadouglas.com and on the Twitters at Joshua A. Douglas. Always great speaking with you, my friend, and uh, we might be doing it again between now and Christmas. This is, this is fun, and I always enjoy coming on. I'd be happy, happy to come back to chat about ranked choice voting or any other aspect of our democracy. Thank you, brother. Greatly appreciated. Talk to you soon. Thank you. So I have a quick question. Do yeah. you want to explain why you have problems with ranked choice voting, what those problems are? Do you want to have time left for the Green News Report today? <laughs> yes. Okay, then. No, I can't explain it. Other okay. than to, to say that uh, if you look at all the problems we have uh, counting our votes as is right now, just look at you know Georgia and Pennsylvania this week alone, you're going to add complicated algebra of ranked choice voting to that and require computers must be used to figure out this mess. Good luck, New York City. But we'll talk about it in more detail on another day. How's Got that? It. Sounds good. That way we can still do the Green News Report. Coming up next with Desi Doyen, I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. So, today, Desi Doyen, we have our 999th episode of the Green News Report. Yeah. And I hope I'm not giving too much away in saying that uh, we did talk a while back about, oh, you know what, once we get to 1,000, uh, maybe we ought to pack it in. <laughs> maybe we ought to call it off. Yes, we did say that, but I don't think we're going to. You don't? No. Too much going on. Oh, okay. Well, I will say this. Uh, if you folks out there have enjoyed the Green News Report over the years um, or learned anything from it, even if you haven't enjoyed it, uh, <laughs> please do consider uh, supporting our work and Desi Doyen's hard work on the GNR by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. The only reason we have been able to cover this for the last 10 years or more, I think going on 11 years, is because we are supported by listeners and listeners only. For some reason, all of the Exxons and the Monsantos and the Shell Oils of the world do not wish to 
to sponsor the Green News Report. Yeah, I don't so, know why. So weird. But it also helps us to uh, offer it for free to everyone around the world. So bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you very much. As we head towards 1,000, here is number 999 of our Green News Report. It is clear we have a climate emergency. 11,000 scientists issue dire warning on climate change. The planet just broiled through the hottest October ever recorded. Trump EPA moves to weaken clean water standards again. Plus... They knew, and then they covered it up by putting out disinformation. They deceived not only the public, but they deceived policymakers and the media. Honolulu and Maui sue big oil for climate damages. All of those big damages and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And it is a remarkable thing that this president would skip a UN climate change summit (laughs) on an imaginary problem to address the very real problem of global persecution of believers. Yes, believers in an imaginary bearded flying man in the sky. Oh, we have gone off the rails. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Dizzy Doyen, the heat records continue, and it turns out they are not imaginary at all. (laughs) No, sadly, they are not. October 2019 was the hottest October ever recorded globally since record-keeping began in the 1880s, edging past the previous record set just in 2015. That's according to the European Union's Earth Monitoring Service Copernicus this week. NASA and NOAA will issue their report soon and are expected to reach similar conclusions. Just imagine. It's the fifth straight month in a row to break a new monthly record or near record for heat. Imagine that. On the same day as that October heat record was announced, 11,000 scientists publishing in the journal Bioscience issued a stark public statement declaring that, quote, planet Earth is facing a climate emergency and warning that humanity faces, quote, untold suffering due to the climate crisis. They state that climate impacts are here and are more severe and accelerating faster than previously predicted. But they also said that the damages can be mitigated if we undertake major transformations in the way society functions. They outlined six broad policy goals to address the problem, including replacing fossil fuels with clean energy, reducing pollutants like methane and carbon, and shifting our land use to restore ecosystems and stop deforestation. Meanwhile, out in the Pacific Ocean, rising sea surface temperatures are fueling powerful super typhoon Howlong. Forecasters say it is a powerful Category 5 plus because there is no Category 6 and it is now one of the top most powerful storms ever observed by satellite. Thankfully, however, super typhoon Howlong is not expected to impact land. How long is it expected to keep spinning? That's an excellent question. See what I did there? Yes, I see what you did there. Off the west coast of the U.S., a new study warns that rising ocean temperatures are triggering coastal ecosystem shifts and wreaking havoc on marine life. A California Department of Fish and Wildlife Service study has concluded that successive marine heat waves from 2014 to 2017 killed 90 percent of the underwater kelp forests that used to extend from San Francisco to Oregon. The marine heat wave also contributed to a mass die-off of 20 starfish species. 
And without starfish around to keep them in check, voracious sea urchin populations exploded that helped to mow down the kelp forests. And even if you believe that climate change is imaginary, how do these people explain all of this death in the oceans? Another good question. Thank you. In the nation's capital, the Trump Environmental Protection Agency this week moved to weaken clean drinking water rules again, proposing changes to Obama-era standards governing the disposal of toxic coal ash waste and waste water from coal-fired power plants that's contaminated with toxins like arsenic and lead. Recent studies of U.S. coal plants' own data report that more than 90 percent of the nation's regulated coal ash repositories are leaking unsafe levels of toxic chemicals into nearby groundwater. Finally, some good news. In Hawaii, Maui County and the city of Honolulu have joined the growing list of state and local governments that are suing major oil companies for damages. The new lawsuits allege that the oil giants lied to the public and policymakers for decades about what they knew about climate change. And they seek compensation for the mounting costs and repairs from damages caused by rising sea levels and extreme weather. In a press conference, Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell noted that taxpayers are already paying millions to repair damages caused by more frequent hurricanes and coastal erosion, and that new data projects the costs will be upwards of $75 billion to repair and relocate infrastructure. And this lawsuit will seek damages to mitigate the impacts of our climate crisis and to do repairs and other things that need to be done. They need to pay just like big tobacco needed to pay. Well, I can tell you the big fossil fuel companies may want to pretend still that this is all imaginary. It is absolutely not and hopefully they will find out soon in a court of law. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Just my imagination. Just my imagination. Just my imagination. Nope, it's not just your imagination. Although I wish it was my imagination, uh, this breaking news story that Michael Bloomberg is now apparently considering entering the Democratic race for president. Oh, boy. The one thing everybody needs what is, is a third-party spoiler. Yeah, I know. What is it? Well, what is it with these billionaires who are good on climate, who put in a lot of money on climate, Michael Bloomberg, Tom Steyer, uh, thinking that they also need to run for president? Anyway... Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. <laughs> yep. That was GNR 999. And our next one is GNR 1000, if we make it there. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Thanks to our producer, uh, Desi Doyen, and to our guest today, Josh Douglas of the University of Kentucky, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime. For free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog, and Desi is Green News Report. Yes. And let's see, anything else? No. Oh, yeah. Thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us get to GNR 1000 and our next thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Until then... I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Bye.